Chapter Seven of the Snow Burner by Henry Oyen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Seven, The Snow Burner's Creed. When Toppy returned to the room in the rear of the blacksmith shop, he found Campbell waiting impatiently. "Hey, lad, but you're the slow one." greeted the gruff old Scot as Toppy entered. "'You set a record in this camp. No man has yet been able to consume so much time getting a pair of blankets from the Wanigan. Dump em in yon bunk in the corner and set the table. I'll have supper in a wink and a half.' Toppy obediently tossed his blankets into the bunk indicated and turned to help to the best of his ability. The place now was lighted generously by two large reflector lamps hung on the walls, and Toppy had his first good view of the room that was to be his home. He was surprised at its neatness and comfort. It was a large room, though a little low under the roof, as rooms have a habit of being in the north. In the farthest corner were two bunks, the sleeping quarters. Across the room from this, a corner was filled with well-filled bookshelves, a table with a reading lamp, and two easy chairs, giving the air of a tiny library. In the corner farthest from this was the cook stove, and in the fourth corner stood an oilcloth-covered table, with a shelf filled with dishes hung above it. Though the rough edges of hewn logs shone here and there through the plaster of the walls, the room was as spick and span as if under the charge of a finicky housewife. Old Campbell himself, bending over the cook stove, was as astonishing in his own way as the room. He had removed all trace of the day's smithing and fairly shone with cleanliness. His snow-white hair was carefully combed back from his wide forehead, his bushy chin-whiskers likewise showed signs of water and comb and he was garbed from throat to ankles in a white cook's apron. He was cheerfully humming a dirge-like tune, and so occupied was he with his cookery that he scarcely so much as glanced at Toppy. "'Now then, lad, are you ready?' he asked presently. "'All ready, I guess,' said Toppy, giving a final look at the table. "'You've forgot the bread.' said Campbell, also looking. "'You'll find it in yon tin box on the shelf. Lively now!' And before Toppy had dished out a loaf from the bread box, the old man had a huge platter of steak and twin bowls of potatoes and turnips steaming on the table. "'We will now say grace,' said Campbell, seating himself after removing the big apron, and Toppy sat silent and amazed as the old man bowed his head and in his deep voice solemnly uttered thanks for the meal before him. "'Now then,' he said briskly, raising his head and reaching for a fork as he ended, "'Fall to!' The meal was eaten without any more conversation than was necessary. When it was over, the blacksmith pushed his chair leisurely back from the table and looked across at Toppy with a quizzical smile. "'Well, lad,' he rumbled, 
What would you say was the next thing to be done by ourselves? Wash the dishes, said Toppy promptly, taking his cue from the conspicuous cleanliness of the room. Aye, said Campbell, nodding, and as I cook the meal— I'm elected dishwasher, laughed Toppy, springing up and taking a large dishpan from the wall. He had often done his share of kitchen work on hunting trips, and soon he had the few dishes washed and dried and back on the shelf again. Campbell watched critically. "'Well enough,' he said with an approving jerk of his head when the task was completed. "'Your conscience should be easier now, lad. You've done something to pay for the meal you've eaten, which I'll warrant is something you've not often done.' "'No,' laughed Toppy. "'It just happens that I haven't had to.' "'Haven't had to,' snorted Campbell in disgust. "'Is that all the justification you have? "'Where's your pride? "'Are you a helpless infant that you're not ashamed "'to let other people stuff food into your mouth "'without doing anything for it? "'I suppose you've got money. "'And where came your money from?' Your father? Your mother? No matter. Whoever it came from, they're the people who've been feeding you, but by the great smoked herring. If you stay with David Campbell, you'll have a change, lad. Aye, you'll learn what it is to earn your bread in the sweat of your brow. And you'll bless the day you come here, no matter what the reason that made you come, and which I do not want to hear." Toppy bowed courteously. "'I've got no comeback to that line of conversation, Mr. Campbell,' he said good-naturedly. "'Whenever anybody accuses me of being a bum with money, I throw up my hands and plead guilty. You can't get an argument out of me with a corkscrew.' Old Campbell's grim face cracked in a genial smile as he rose and led the way to the corner containing the bookshelves. "'We will now step into the library,' he chuckled. "'Sit ye down.' He pushed one of the easy chairs toward Toppy, and from a cupboard under the reading table drew a bottle of Scotch whiskey of a celebrated brand. Toppy's whole being suddenly cried out for a drink as his eyes fell on the familiar four stars. "'Say when, lad,' said Campbell, pouring into a generous glass." Well, he looked at Toppy in surprise as the glass filled up. Something had smitten Toppy like a blow between the eyes. How can nice boys like you throw themselves away? And the pity of the girl, as she had said it, was large before him. Thanks, said Toppy, seating himself, but I'm on the wagon. The old smith looked up at him shrewdly from the corners of his eyes. "'Oh, aye,' he grunted. "'I see. Well, by the puffs under your eyes, you have overdone it. And for fleeing the temptations of the world, I know of no better place you could go to than this. For it's certain neither temptations nor luxuries will be found in hell camp, while the snow-burners boss—' "'Now you interest me,' said Toppy grimly. 
the snow burner hell camp reavers mr reavers the boss what kind of a human being is he if he is human campbell carefully mixed his whiskey with hot water you saw him manhandle roski he asked seating himself opposite toppy yes but it wasn't manhandling it was brute handling beast handling aye said the scot sipping his drink so think i too but do you know what reivers calls it an enlightened man showing a human clod the error of his ways oh aye the indians were smart when they named him the snow burner he does things that aren't natural but who is he or what is he he's an educated man obviously way above what a logging boss ought to be what do you know about him little enough was the reply four years ago i were smithing in elk lake camp over east of here when reivers came walking into camp that was the first any white man had seen of him around these woods though afterward we learned he'd lived long enough with the indians to earn the name of the snow burner it were january and two feet of snow on the level and fifty below reivers came walking into camp and the nearest human habitation were forty mile away red pat haney were foreman a man-killer with the devil's own temper and him reivers deliberately set himself to arouse a week after his coming this same reivers had every man in camp looking up to him except red pat and reivers drove pat half mad with that contemptuous smile of his and pat pulled a gun and reivers says that's what i was waiting for and broke pat's bones with his bare hands and laid him up then says he this camp is going on just the same as if nothing had happened and i'm going to be boss that was all there was to it he's been a boss ever since and you don't know where he came from or anything else about him oh he's from england an oxford man for that matter said campbell he admitted that much once when we were argufying he'll be here soon he comes to quarrel with me every evening why does an oxford man want to be way out here bossing a logging camp grumbled toppy campbell nodded i i asked that of him once he said though it's none of your business says he i'll tell you i got tired of living where people snivel about laws concerning right and wrong says he instead of acknowledging that there is only one law ruling life that the strong can master the weak that is mr reiver's religion he was only worshiping his strange gods when he broke roski's leg for he considers roski a weaker man than himself and therefore tis his duty to break him to his own will a fine religion snapped toppy and how about his dealings with you the scot smiled grimly i'm the best smith he ever had 
he replied, and I've warned him that I'd consider it a duty under my religion to shoot him through the head did he ever attempt to force his creed upon me. He paused and held up a finger. Hist, lad, that's him coming now. He's come for his regular evening mouthful of conversation. Toppy found himself sitting up and gripping the arm of his chair as Reivers came swinging in. He eagerly searched the foreman's countenance for a sign to indicate whether Tilly, the squaw, had communicated the conversation she had heard between Toppy and Miss Pearson, but if she had, there was nothing to indicate it in Reivers' expression or manner. His self-mastery awoke a sullen rage in Toppy. He felt himself to be a boy beside Reivers. "'Good evening, gentlemen,' greeted Reivers lightly, pulling a chair up to the reading table. "'It is a pleasure to find intelligent society after having spent the last hour handling the broken leg of a miserable brute on two legs. "'Bah! The whiskey, Scotty, please.' I wonder what miracles of misbreeding have been necessary to turn out alleged human beings with bodies so hideous compared to what the human body should be. Treplin, if you or I stripped beside those hunkies, the only thing we'd have in common would be the number of our legs and arms. He drew toward him a tumbler which Campbell had pushed over beside the bottle, and, filling the glass three-quarters full, began to drink slowly at the powerful scotch whiskey as another man might sip at beer or light wine old campbell rocked slowly to and fro in his chair he that taketh up the sword shall perish by the sword he quoted solemnly no man is a god to set himself up lord over the souls and body of his fellows they will put out your light for you one of these days, Mr. Reivers. Have care and treat them a little more like men. Reivers smiled a quick smile that showed a mouthful of teeth as clean and white as a hound's. Let's have your opinion on the subject, Treplin, he said. New opinions are always interesting, and Scotty repeats the same thing over and over again. What do you think of it? Do you think I can maintain my rule over those hundred and fifty clods out there in the stockade as I am ruling them, through the law of strength over weakness? Do you think one superior mind can dominate a hundred and fifty inferior organisms? Or do you think, with Scotty here, that the dregs can drag me down? Toppy shook his head. He was in no mood to debate abstract problems with Reivers. "'Count me out until I'm a little acquainted with the situation,' he said. "'I'm a stranger in a strange land. I've just dropped in, from almost another world, you might say.' In a vain attempt to escape taking sides in what was evidently an old argument, he hurriedly rattled off the story of his coming to Railhead and thence to Hell Camp, omitting to mention, however, that it was Miss Pearson who was responsible for the latter part of his journey. Reivers smote his huge fist upon the table as Toppy finished. "'That's the kind of a man for me,' 
he laughed. Got tired of living the life of his class and just stepped out of it. No explanations, no acknowledgment of obligations to anybody. Master of his own soul. To hell with the niceties of civilization. Treplin, you're a man after my own scheme of life. I did the same thing once, only I was sober. But let's get back to our subject. Here's the situation. This camp is on a natural town site. There's water power, ore, and timber. To use the water power, we must build a dam. To use the timber, we must get it to the saws. That takes labor, lots of it, muscle and bone labor. Labor is scarce up here. It is too far from the pigsties of towns. Men would come, work a few days, and go away. The purpose of the place would be defeated, unless the men are kept here at work. That's what I do. I keep them here. To do it, I keep them locked up at night like the cattle they are. By day, I have them guarded by armed man-killers. Every one of my guards is a fugitive from man's silly laws, principally from the one which says, Thou shalt not kill. But my best guard is fear, by which I rule alike my guards and the poor brutes who are necessary to my purpose. There you are, a hundred and fifty of them, fearing and hating me, and I'm making them do as I please. No foolishness about laws, about order, about right or wrong. Just a hundred and fifty half-beasts and myself out here in the woods. As a man with a trained mind, do you think I can keep it up? Or do you think there is a mental energy enough in that mess of human protoplasm to muster up nerve enough to put out my light, as Scotty puts it? It's a problem that furnishes interesting mental gymnastics. He propounded the problem with absolutely no trace of personal interest. To judge by his manner, the matter of his life or death meant nothing to him. It was merely an interesting question on which to expend the energy fulminating in his mind. In his light blue eyes there seemed to gleam the same impersonal brutality which had shown out when he so casually crippled Rosky. "'Oh, it's an impossible proposition, Reavers,' exploded Toppy, with the picture of the writhing slob in his mind's eye. "'You've got to consider right and wrong when dealing with human beings. It isn't natural. Nature won't stand it.' "'Ah!' Reavers' eyes lighted up with intellectual delight. That's an idea. Scotty, you hear? You've been talking about my perishing by the sword, but you haven't given any reason why. Treplin does. He says nature will revolt, because my system is unnatural. He threw back his head and laughed coldly. Rot, Treplin, silly, effeminate, bookish rot, he roared. Nature has respect only for the strong. It creates the weaker species merely to give the stronger food to remain strong on. 
Old Scotty had been rocking furiously. Now he stopped suddenly and broke out into a furious biblical denunciation of Reaver's system. When he stopped for breath after his first outbreak, Reavers, with a few words and a cold smile, egged him on. Toppy gladly kept his mouth shut. After an hour he yawned and arose from his chair. "'If you'll excuse me, I'll turn in,' he said. "'I'm too sleepy to listen or talk.' Without looking at him, Reavers drew a book from his pocket and tossed it toward him. "'Davis on fractures,' he grunted. "'Cram up on it tomorrow. There will be need of your help before long. "'Go on, Scotty. You were saying that a just retribution was nature's law. Go on.' And Toppy rolled into his bunk to lie wide awake, listening to the argument, marveling at the character of Reavers, and pondering over the strange situation he had fallen into. He scarcely thought of what Harvey Duncombe and the bunch would be thinking about his disappearance. His thoughts were mainly occupied with wondering why, of all the women he had seen, a slender little girl with golden hair should suddenly mean so much to him. Nothing of the sort ever had happened to him before. It was rather annoying. Could she ever have a good opinion of him? probably not. And even if she could, what about Reavers? Toppy was firmly convinced that the speech which Reavers had made to Miss Pearson was a false one. Reavers might have a great reputation for always keeping his word, but Toppy, after what he had seen and heard, would no more trust to his morals than those of a hungry bear. If Tilly, the squaw, told Reavers what she had heard, what then? Well, in that case, they would soon know whether Reavers meant to keep his promise not to bother Miss Pearson with his attentions. Toppy set his jaw grimly at the thought of what might happen then. The mere thought of Reavers seemed to make his fists clench hard. He lay awake for a long time with Reavers' voice, coldly bantering Campbell, constantly in his ears. When Reavers finally went away, he fell asleep. Before his closed eyes was the picture of the girl, as in the morning she had kicked up the snow and looked up at him with her eyes deliciously puckered from the sun, and in his memory was the stinging recollection that she had called him a nice boy. End of chapter 7 Recording by Roger Moline